Episode number seven with fashion icon Andre Leon Talley. Welcome to the Institute of Black Imagination. I'm your host, Dario Calmis, an artist, writer, brand consultant, and generally curious fellow. And each week we bring you a conversation from the pool of black genius to inspire, engage, and help you unleash your own imagination. Today's episode is with titan of American fashion, Andre Leon Talley. Raised in Durham, North Carolina by his grandmother, Andre's love for fashion began at an early age with his discovery of magazines like Vogue and Harper's Bazaar, giving him access to worlds and visions beyond the segregated Jim Crow South. A star student, Andre received a full scholarship to Brown University to study French literature after completing his undergraduate degree at a local HBCU, North Carolina Central University. Although he came from humble beginnings, Andre's meteoric rise through the editorial mastheads of fashion's most prominent publications speak not only to his fine-tuned intellect, but also a keen social intelligence, navigating the dominantly white front rows of the fashion industry for decades. Beginning with an internship at the Metropolitan Museum of Art with legendary fashion editor and lifelong mentor Diana Freeland, he went on to work at Andy Warhol's factory and Interview Magazine. Later stints at Women's Wear Daily, W Magazine, and the New York Times prepared him for his influential role atop the masthead as creative director of American Vogue in 1988, which made him the highest-ranking black person in fashion journalism. He published his first memoir, ALT, in 2003, and his current book, The Chiffon Trenches, which offers a candid window into his professional and personal struggles, was released May of 2020. He currently sits on the board of trustees at the Savannah College of Art and Design, and his documentary, The Gospel According to Andre, was directed by Kim Novak and released in the U.S. in 2018. This conversation with Andre was recorded just two days ago, but felt so relevant and pressing that we decided to release part one for you today. We speak of Andre's life in the Jim Crow South, his introduction into America's upper class at Brown University, how fashion served as armor to shield him from his serial childhood sexual abuse, and I, for the first time publicly, speak of my own. Please enjoy part one of this wide-ranging interview with my friend and mentor, Andre Leon Talley. Voila, voila. Mr. Andre Leon Talley, so good to see you. Great to see you. Um, so, first of all, welcome to the Institute of Black Imagination. Um, it's so it's so wonderful to have you. You are you are the Institute of Black Imagination. Thank you. And so are you. I'm very honored to be in the Institute of Black Imagination. And congratulations on the success of your first historical. Vanity Fair cover with Viola Davis. I know that it's been well-received. It's a beautiful, beautiful, stunning article in the New York Times. But I think the cover represents so much more than just an image of Viola Davis. You explained what the process had gone back to those extraordinary archival images of slaves who had been whipped by the owners and overseers, the white people, for blacks, black people, sometimes had to beat black people. And you decided to, that inspired your picture. But I think more than that is that the whole cover is got a mood of indigo. It's got a blues feeling. And you know, Dr. Cornel West says, we are a blues culture. Mm-hmm. Everyone wakes up with the blues when they're black. And that the color, the choice of the purple and the title Vanity Fair, and the, the mood, the mood of the blue, the deep blue into the purple and the exposure of the back is just so unique and brilliant. And I congratulate you. And it's just the beginning for you, I hope. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It was, um, it was, it was a joy to put together. It was um, really beautiful that Vanity Fair, um, really, because it was, it was a risk. It was a risk in this oh, moment. 
Yes, yes, yes. It was a risk in this moment to take that stand. And, you know, I really applaud the team for just making the space for two black creatives mm -hmm, to mm -hmm. say what they wanted to say yeah. or to just offer their platform for our voices. Beautiful. It's yeah. very very powerful, and I'm sure it will be very well received. And you may have some naysayers, but it doesn't matter because people are basically very, what's the word? Envious of black imagination, as you, as you, as you have so aptly called it, the black imagination always seems threatening. So mm -hmm. it was a bold-faced move on the part of Radika and Vanity Fair. And you became the first African-American to photograph a cover. You continue the evolution of the blackness of the black imagination in, in the world of cultural appropriation and style that began with Edward Innerfeld, first black man of the editor-in-chief of British Vogue, moving on to Tyler, who photographed Beyonce three years ago for September Vogue, first black man to ever photograph a cover story for Vogue, and it's over a hundred years of existence. Samir Nazra being the editor chief of Bazaar, and now here you are, the first black photographer to photograph a cover for Vanity Fair. This is this is extraordinary, <laughs> and it's the future. <laughs> Thank you. How do you, how how are you processing um, this moment in time? Um, You've seen many social movements um, across your lifetime. How does this one feel different, if it feels different? It feels different because it's a widespread movement. It crosses all tributaries and all uh, 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 junctures in the road. I mean, there is uh, the awareness of systemic racism, and I think the reason in this moment of the pandemic, when George Floyd was televised in the technical lynching, it was a high tech lynching, as we watched eight minutes, 46 seconds, everyone watched that on television in real time. And if you had any kind of empathy or any kind of humanity, it had to affect you no matter you could be black, brown, indigo, blue, white, yellow, Chinese, Asian, Latina. And I think that this started an awareness and it just became a tsunami. And, you know, there, Anna Winter went off and made a statement that she was responsible for intolerant and hurtful behavior in terms of diversity for Vogue, which was unique and ex unexpected. And then it, it, it just seems different. It seems more, uh, more embedded in uh, reality because there are things that are being done which absolutely will promote this moment in time. This, there, is, there, there are actions are being done. Decisions are being made. You know, people are taking the risk. You know, 20 years ago, uh, Dario would not have been able to photograph or even go into a Vanity Fair meeting about a cover shoot. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So I think that there's a, the, the, suddenly this world has taken on its, its responsibility to us and to the black imagination. Hmm. <laughs> Which is always steeped in history. Always, always the black imagination cannot be valid unless it is solidly grounded in the history. The history of we, as in an enslaved, descendants of enslaved Africans, 401 years of slavery, the 1619 Project, um, it is steeped in history. Everything that you do, as you so brilliantly explained in the New York Times piece, you went back to those harrowing pictures of the a black man with the scars left from his beating, which is also another heavy, deep moment. And you it, it impacted your contemporary visual of a Vanity Fair cover. You articulated that, but you processed that creativity from that history. Am I right? That you are correct. And, uh, that is important, and history is everywhere. Uh, I, 
I, I just want to go back. When you did your, that show, that brilliant show you did once in, this, in Harlem with a lady who came from Abyssinia, I went to the show, but I didn't see you, but I was there. That was so brilliant. Her clothes. Now, was she a member? Where did you meet her? How did you meet her at Abyssinia? Um, so her name is Lana Turner. Um, a real name? Her real name is Lana Turner. I have a photo of her driver's license. <laughs> no. and, and, and she was a churchgoer? Yeah, she goes to Abyssinian, but you know where you sit um, uh-huh. on the front um, down, uh-huh. she, we sit up in the balcony off to the right. So if you're facing the pulpit, she's up to the right. And she, she probably gets out of church before I even get up to the, to the exit, yeah. <laughs> but she's extraordinary. I, for, I, I will be looking for her the next time I'm in church, if we ever get back to church. I mean... Yeah, but no, I met her when I was in grad school um, at SVA, and I wanted to, I mean, I'd always seen her, you know, just turned out every Sunday, and I just wanted to borrow some hats for what I thought would be a fashion story. Um, and you turned it into an exhibit. Well, it, it, she t- it, was, it was her, like, it was just her. Like, I saw the hats, and then I realized... You know, she invited me to her apartment mm-hmm. and we had, you know, coffee, well, tea, and we spoke. Mm-hmm. And then I realized she had over 500 hats. Wow. And then she said, you know, well, maybe you'd like to see some of my clothes that I pair with the hats. And she took me to her walk-in closet, which is really just a room. <laughs> and I saw these clothes and it was, you know... Mm couture French mignon and mm-hmm. um, um, Scassi and like all of these beautiful Dior, the, the mm-hmm. original um, Christian Dior ball shoe, you know, mm-hmm. the shoe with the ball Yes, heel. that famous shoe. You know, she had all of these amazing pieces and I just realized, oh, uh, okay, well, I guess I'm shooting you <laughs> and, <laughs> and I won't, it won't be about the hats. It's mm. going to be you and your clothes and we're just going to do this. Um, until, until we're done and we're not done and we've shot for five years oh um, it's great to know this continued yeah and work in progress yeah and we that just will shoot. become an amazing if a uh, show not only a show of photography yes wow what is your dream for that collection of work um you know i mean i think it's it's still in development i mean for me, it's all kind of the same story that I'm telling, but essentially for that series, it would be, I think it would be amazing to have a book. Um, you know, I've spoken with a couple of people about maybe like a small documentary just uh-huh. so we can actually speak because she herself, so the thing about Miss Turner that's also so amazing is as beautiful as she presents outside, that's really an exterior expression of her interiority. Yes, she yes, well, is. Good. She is that considered and mm-hmm. that measured um, inside as well. She's you know quite spiritual, um, very deeply connected, but also is unconcerned. She's dressing because she considers that her artistic expression Mm -hmm. she doesn't wear makeup she doesn't always even comb her hair properly she just puts it in a ponytail and keeps it moving very black very black (laughs) (laughs) and i think that's what that's what kind of makes it work is that she's Mm -hmm. not really trying to present she's just expressing herself Mm, um and and speaking of of self-expression um could you talk about the art of dressing. I remember when we first met in St. Louis. Actually, we first met uh, at the fashion, uh, the Institute, uh, Fashion FIT? Institute. FIT. FIT. Yeah, we met at FIT for the Black Fashion Designers oh, exhibition. Oh, that, that show that they recently did a, a digital thing that's similar with Harper's Bazaar. Well, the, the dressing for me has always been, as a child, you know, I grew up in my grandmother's house. And um, I, at one point, my group left the house with two women. My great grandmother, her name was China, and my grandmother, great grandmother China, died in 1961. So I remember her. But um, growing up in a house with two women, I was spoiled, pampered. Mm-hmm. Although we were poor, my grandmother was a domestic maid for 50 years at Duke University. She washed the, the toilets in the men's dormitory and made up the beds every day, five days a week. Mm-hmm. And um, so everything was given to me because my parents lived in D.C. 
And they supplemented my life growing up in my grandmother's house. I went to every school. I went to grade school, junior high, and high school. So I was getting money, and my grandmother knew what to buy. She knew exactly what to buy. So I will always remember as a child, one year, I don't know what age, my grandmother went downtown in Durham, North Carolina, and found for my birthday these most extravagant yellow, felty, you know, the kind of fabric, it was like fuzzy. I don't know what to, what to call it. Now, it was like, it was not cotton, but it was brushed wool, brushed cotton. They were paisley. And the label said, Christian Dior, New York. And it always stuck in my mind, Christian Dior, New York. Now, when I saw these pajamas at that age, I didn't go and Google, we didn't have Google. I didn't go and Google Christian Dior, New York. And my grandmother did not know. She loved they, they were red paisley on a lemon yellow background. And I don't know what those pajamas, what happened to them that got lost. I lived for those pajamas and it was my first memory of luxury. So when I started reading Vogue and I got into Vogue magazine at the age of nine, then I realized Dior was an important name in fashion. And I went back to my pajamas. And the, the pajamas, pajamas said Christian Dior, New York, which was, of course, a licensee where they were making children's pajamas. And I had them. <clears throat> so every time I would go shopping with my grandmother, we would go to the best stores in downtown Durham on Main Street. We had no malls then. This is 1958, 60, 61, 62. I would get the most beautiful sweaters. I, there was a men's store. They had the most beautiful mohair sweaters. And every time I had a birthday, my father and mother would send money to my grandmother and I would go shopping. And then I had a stadium coat. I went to this one men's store, very white, but blacks were allowed in. It was not that segregated then. And I always just had beautiful clothes and um, beautiful shoes. I remember I had my first pair of Italian moccasins bought downtown Durham. And I remember that it, what I wore to school didn't matter. I mean, I had normal clothes. But on Sunday mornings, we had to put the best foot forward. And it was church. And church was the culture that influenced my uh, sense of dressing. <clears throat> the sense of style came from the church culture. <clears throat> I love the way the women dressed and the men because I always loved the way the men looked. They may not have had a lot of clothes, but they had, whatever they had, it was impeccable. It was white shirts, their polished shoes. I remember my uncles, I used to love to sit and watch my uncles polish their shoes for church on Sunday. And so I then discovered Vogue and it was all about clothes, not only the clothes, but the people in Vogue, the captions in Vogue, the column Men in Vogue by Camille Douay. He was French, but he lived in New York. Uh, Observations in Vogue, edited by Carrie Donovan, where I discovered Stephen Burroughs. Where Carrie Donovan discovered Stephen Burroughs with her then gay boyfriend, Joel Schumacher. Joel Schumacher, who just died. He's 80 years old. He died of cancer. He's a great producer and director in Hollywood. I think he directed Sparkle. I'm not sure. Let's check that. And so Joel Schumacher was on Fire Island one day and Stephen Burroughs was there. He had the old boutique and he was about to close the old boutique and Joel Schumacher thought he had great style. And he introduced uh, Stephen to Carrie Donovan, I mean to uh, Geraldine Stutz and to um, Vogue. And then he had his first big color spread in Vogue Thanks to Joel Shoemaker, Carrie Donovan did this extraordinary double page color spread in the observation page, which was like a precursor to the style facts in Life and Andre in those days. And that's when I discovered the world of Stephen Barrows. And I thought it was the most wonderful world. And so I liberated myself through reading Vogue. And then I, I didn't have many uh, great friends when I was a child. I had my best friend was my cousin who lived on the same street as I did, four doors down. And she was the only child and she was a girl. And so she and I got together and we loved, we loved Vogue. We poured through the pages of Vogue. And she, her, she was spoiled too. I mean, she was the only child. So in those days, if you were the only child, you, you probably had good clothes. I know she was spoiled because her parents, her father was the first black policeman in Durham ever on the police force, Benjamin McClary. And he got on the police force in the 40s. Black man on the police force in Durham all his life. And they gave her weekly piano lessons. 
and she had to go across town and take piano lessons. And she became a state, she won state championships, and I mean classical piano. And to this day, she still plays the piano. She plays the piano for church. And she had the best dresses, and I remember she had prom, her prom dress. And we had, we once went to a black show, a teenage show in Raleigh. It was a dance show based on like a American bandstand. And we were so proud. And her parents bought her the most extraordinary pink dress in some fancy store, pink lace and pink chiffon. There we were, young black teenagers in high school on this show. I don't know the name of it, in Raleigh, W-R-A-L. So this is where the, my fashion, my passion for fashion that became an armor. It was my escape. It was liberating to me. And I just love fashion. And in high school, I was considered very well-dressed because I had one beautiful V-neck cashmere sweater, yellow, and one pair of navy blue pants. And on my favorite days, this is what I would wear. And of course, you know, I have hung out with the bougie people, the snobby people, the Jack and Jill people, but I was never in Jack and Jill, but you know, it was very snobbish. But I also was noted for my fashion sense. And it was very classical, it was very conservative, but it was the best the best that we could afford. And then um, I went to Brown. No, I went to, I went to the, an HBCU, NCCU in Durham, North Carolina. Got a scholarship to Brown to do my master's degree and my doctoral thesis. And that was in uh, 1970. And I went to Brown and the world opened because they were, people were exposed. So I got to Brown, I made all these great friends. And I just, I was liberated. Naomi Sims was a great influence. I, Naomi Sims, Deanna Vreeland, everything in Vogue and Hobbes Bazaar was fabulous to me. And I remember when I went to Brown, I was, I had vintage clothes. No one started buying vintage clothes, especially in Durham. But I would find old thrift stores and find vintage clothes. And I came to New York one summer and I bought this beautiful waxed policeman's cape, it was black. And I bought these ruffled shirts that were supposed to be dinner shirts. And I'd wear them to class with ropes of tassels. I got that idea from Vogue. I saw that in Vogue. So I wore these tassels. It was in the men's pages of Vogue. And I went downtown to the curtain drapery store in Durham and bought myself some silk tassels and wore three at a time. <laughs> and um, I'm sure you did things like this too, did you not? And so I was looked upon. And then people were, people were impressed with me. They didn't question me. But by the time I did that, I started at an NCCU. I still lived at home with my grandmother because I wanted to be close. When I went to Brown, I was liberated and I just, I, I was just all out. I went, I went to thrift stores in New York. I found uh, shirts from old movies. I found things like in the secondhand rows, you know, Barbara Streisand saying secondhand rows. I was mm -hmm. inspired by Barbara Streisand. So I would go thrift shopping, thrift shopping. I will never forget. I had this extraordinary navy blue admiral's coat with gold braid on the cuffs that I found in the thrift store, like a maxi, the maxi coats were in. So I, I had a maxi coat and a beautiful navy blue admiral's coat with gold brass buttons. It was a high quality. And um, I love that. And I just, I, I just, in the seventies, that what the fashion was in Paris, they were rolling up their blue jeans. You wear blue jeans and you roll them up above the ankle. I think there was part, I think Sonia Riquel was cutting clothes, jersey trousers like that. So I got to Brown and um, I was into Louis Vuitton, Stephen Barrows, and everything fashionable. And I said to my best friends, Janice and Yvonne, they were my two best friends, they still are to this day. Janice is a professor of French studies at Syracuse University. And uh, we went to Paris on spring break and we were three and we stayed in the same hotel room. There were twin beds. And um, I got off the plane with them and I said, listen girls, you're not going to embarrass me. Just roll up those blue jeans, roll them up above your ankles because this is what we have to do. And I rolled mine up. I said, you're not going to embarrass me. And there's a picture of Janice and I standing on the, on the avenue, Champs-Élysées, so you can see the Arc de Triomphe. And I am skinny um, and I'm tall. I'm skinny as you are in a pair of rolled up blue jeans, a big cowboy belt, a silver belt, a ski cap, and a beautiful cardigan sweater. I, the sweater must have come, it was a navy blue cardigan. I must have bought that on sale somewhere, like some fancy store. And then I've got aviator sunglasses, yellow aviator sunglasses. I've got a necktie and a silk square and this beautiful 
Navy blue cardigan, and I'm replicating the Saint Laurent look, the Reed Gauche look. And um, so we were running around Versailles with these looks on, and I'm, I was photographing Versailles, walking in the gardens with these rolled up blue jeans. And I used to go to class at Brown, and Deanna Vreeland, I read and knew that she put rouge on her over here next to her ears. And then I read in Versailles, there was a beauty story on Naomi Sims, and she had would buy Estee Lauder grape lipstick, grape, and just put a bit of grape over here on the lobes and to give height to the, you know, the complexion. And then she covered a layer of Vaseline. And I would do that. I'd go to class every day. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. But and so I found in fashion and in clothes and in personal dress an out a way to express myself. It was my armor. It was the way I presented myself, it made me feel confident. And I felt, I didn't do it to show, but it gave me a sense of confidence. And I, and, 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 and Brown, I must say, I found friends who really were also doing that. You know, especially mm -hmm. the students at RISD became my great friends. They were children of privilege, had been sent to Rhode Island School of Design, usually came with trucks of furniture and stuff and had apartments uh, down, on the, down near Rizzi. It's a very small town. And they would have these houses, apartments, and they would just give dinner parties. And I remember Madeline Parrish, she's from a very wealthy girl from Virginia. She came with her two-seater Mercedes Benz to class, to school. She later became an editor at Vogue. She since moved back to Virginia. But she used to say, well, I'm on my way to New York, and I'm going to Bendel's, only Bendel, and I'm going to buy myself some clothes. And she come back with, suitcases of Sonia Riquel, the entire look. Because in those days, Sonia Riquel was the fashion du jour. She was a woman. I always admired her. And I knew Sonia, and I know Natalie, her daughter. And Aaron McBrown and Madeline Parrish is wearing a RISD student, an undergraduate student at RISD, wearing full-on Sonia Riquel head-to-toe sweaters and the cropped jersey trouser. And then at night, we, she would give parties on Saturdays, she'd give these fabulous parties. And these were not like people walked in her house in jeans. First, she had a furnished apartment in RISD, and it was no furniture, blah, blah, this, all the modern lighting stuff. She, she was obviously a very wealthy girl. And she was a very tall girl, very full of boothmy girl. And she would be, she opened the door with brown satin, reeve gauche pajamas that had been photographed in Vogue. I mean, this is the world I moved in. And the people, Robert Turner, Robert Turner was at RISD. He come from Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And I think he was the descendant of a few people that had some plantations. He was a very good friend of mine. But we left that out. And Robert is a great, great <laughs> And you know, we did not talk about that, but we know he was from Baton Rouge, but he kept saying, well, I plantation. And I thought, oh. I ended up being a best friend with Robert, and he, I slept on his floor. I slept on his floor in December of 1974 on his floor. He went home to Baton Rouge. By the way, Robert Turner, Madeline came with her two-seater Mercedes. Robert Turner had a four-door bottle green BMW as his car. This is what they came to school with, BMWs and Mercedes. So one year, Robert wanted to go I'm going to get this fur coat. We went to got New York and bought a fur coat from Rivion. And another year, he went and bought a kimono at Yves Saint Laurent. At that moment, the Reeve Ghosty was doing black cashmere kimonos, bathrobe kimono coats for men. I said, Robert, you got this Yves Saint Laurent coat? Yeah, I had to go get it, but I can't let my father know. So I, these are the kind of people I grew up with, and I people. And Janice, my best friend, she and I, we would love fashion. Janice and, and Janice and I, would go with our friend Yvonne, who also, she was black, and her parents, she was the only child from Beaumont, Texas. She's now an anesthesiologist, but she got a full-on scholarship to Brown because then there was affirmative action. We were all black folk who came to Brown who got gotten these full scholarships to do advanced degrees. And Janice was in French, and Yvonne was in um, biology or research or something. She had a yellow Volkswagen, and so, we would get the Sunday newspapers, the New York Times, and we would just, and we, I would sit down and say, Showbiz, look at those f platforms. And then there would be Marina Schiano photographed 
in the Sunday Times Fashion Supplement in Reeve Ghosh and Shoebiz, these gorgeous platforms. And Janice became so obsessed, we took a, we made a special trip. Yvonne drove us in the VW Volkswagen. We came to New York for the day and we went into Henri Bindel more than once and bought these extraordinary platforms we had seen photo, uh, uh, you know, illustrated on page two of the Sunday New York Times newspaper. So we were very fashionable. We went on a spring break, one Easter, went on spring break to Paris, the three of us, and Yvonne was getting married in Beaumont to her childhood boyfriend, Rufus, who's now a great corporate lawyer. He's now retired. And so her parents and her whole whack a blow or wheelbarrow of money, we went on coach, but she had the money to pay for her trousseau. And Yvonne was getting married. And I went to the wedding in Beaumont, Texas. And I was in charge of the whole trousseau. So we went to Paris. And so I said, we're going here, we're going here. Yvonne went into Andre Courage, the boutique, not the couture house, and bought a navy blue suit with white mother of pearl buttons. That's her going away suit. We then went to Charles Jordan and she bought white ankle strap Charles Jordan shoes for her wedding shoes. We then went to Gallery Lafayette. And I said, Yvonne, we're going to go in Gallery Lafayette and go to the fabric department. And we're going to look for fabric for your wedding dress. And you're going to take the fabric home to Beaumont and your dressmaker is going to make your wedding dress. She did everything I suggested. We got into Gallery Lafayette and we found Broderie Anglaise, Cotton Eyelet. We bought boats and boats of Cotton Eyelet. It became her wedding dress. So we had a great time. So the last night we was living in this hotel, fabulous hotel, under the right bank near the Arc de Triomphe. And I had run out of money because we did have a certain amount of money of spending money, but we did not have money like Yvonne had to buy clothes. Her mother and her father had sent her to buy clothes for her wedding. And so I had run out of my little stipend. And I said, I mean, the last night before we come back to Providence, and we were in a room, and I think we had some dinner, like some, if there was McDonald's then. And I said, Janice, Janice and Yvonne slept in one bed, and I slept in another. I said, can you all lend me 50 francs? And they said, why? I said, because I've got to go to Club Set. You know, Club Set was the gay, fashionable disco club, club set. Have you ever heard of Club Set? I've heard of it in your book. <laughs> uh, well, Club Set was just before 54, that was Club Set in Paris. And this is who you saw at Club Set. And it didn't, you didn't have like a vetting thing. You could just walk in a Club Set. It was a very small club. Upstairs was a restaurant. Downstairs was a disco. Very small. I said, I have to go to Club Set. And they said, well, what is Club Set? I said, I just have to go there. Give me 50 francs. You know, I've got to go to Club Set. And I need the 50 francs to get there in the subway and perhaps just order myself an espresso, um, a drink or something. And, I, and these are the kind of people you see at Club Set. Yves Saint Laurent, Lulu de la Falaise, Paloma Picasso, Carl Lagerfeld, Betty Catrou, all the titans of style in the 70s. Or you might see Grace Jones there dancing on a tabletop with no underwear on. <laughs> and I went to club set and got back to the hotel at about three in the morning and we got up the next day and went, came back to America. Um, and to this day, these are my, Janice is a dear friend of mine. I just got off the phone with her yesterday. But you bring up so many things um, that I find interesting. You know, one, you speak continually about fashion as your armor. Yes. What was it protecting you from? Of vast insecurities. I grew up as a single child, as you know, if you read my book. I was serially sexually abused, not by members of my family, but by older men on my street. Actually, men that were three doors down from my house. And they, there must have been word. And I was serially sexually violently abused as a very young child. And I never told, told anyone about it. And I had to live with that. The only time I ever spoke about it was when I wrote this book in 1970, in 2019, in 2018. And why did I decide to convey that in the book? Because I thought, if I've got to be 71, I've got to let, let it go. And this book was a catharsis because I wrote that in the book. But all those years I lived, I lived with my grandmother, and I knew something had happened. The first time it happened, it happened in our woodshed, where the wood was kept. And it was dark, and it was very frightening. And then they would lure me back into places like, they would lure me into their woodsheds in their houses, these, these older, older men. They were not like 30-year-old men. They were like adult men. I was a child. I was lying at 10 years old. And this went on until I was in high school. You know, it, Virginia Woolf was a serially uh, sexually abused by her, st her stepbrothers 
from the time she was like a young girl till she was 23 years old. And I, I never talked to anyone. I, we didn't have therapists in. Black people didn't have therapy. Nobody knew about therapy in the South. Nobody could afford Who went to a psychiatrist or a shrink? And I just didn't know that now I know, I know in hindsight, had I known, I could have said something. But my father wasn't at home. I didn't know to go to my uncle, so I couldn't go to my church. I couldn't say to the man at Sunday school or the Sunday school teacher, this happened to me. I couldn't say that this had happened to me. It, I knew it was something secretive and dark. And I just knew that suddenly after it happened three times that it, something was wrong because I was told never to discuss this or something would happen to me. And I lived with that and I just thought, I felt shamed and I didn't, I'm confused. But I knew that it was not going to define me. Um, I, I don't understand and it was a cruel thing and these people are some of the people are still living today um i'm best friends with one the one of best friends one of my best friends in high school he was my best friend but a lot of his brothers were part of this this serious series the serial sexual abuse and i've never spoken about it i would never name them um i just felt that if i talked to my grandmother she would have had a heart attack and died that i told her the things that happened to me so i used clothes and I use literature and I use the black imagination to become the person that I became, that the person you mm. see today that you're talking to. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's an incredible story. And, you know, and I've actually, I've never actually admitted publicly, but I also was sexually abused as a child yes, 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 um, yes. by cousins. And, you know, I was young, maybe four or five. Oh and, um, and, you know, my cousins are still alive and I still talk to them. Yes. And, and, and you know, oh my God, this is amazing. Yeah. And they were, te they were teenagers at the time, but it was really interesting because even at a really young age, I kind of understood that they were kids too. Mm -hmm. And I never... I never held it against them. Like I actually, no. I never really no. held on to it. And and I also had this really keen sense, which is mm. it's really crazy to think about it now, but of like divine justice that yes. that yes. this what whatever they did to me, it was not on me to repay it back. Right? No. Like it would yes, 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 it yes. would play itself out, yes. and and it and it, it very did. well did. Yes, it. And the same here, you know, when it happened, and I internalized this for so many decades of my life, and it clearly affected everything in my life. I was skinny and tall, and then I realized when I started binge eating after my grandmother and Mrs. Freeland died in 1989, that both of them I lost the two greatest women in my life, that I started binge eating. And I realized, as reading, that, you know, binge eating can come from sexual trauma as a child. But I, I've gone to two shrinks, and but I don't like that shrink thing. You know, I just go to church, and I just get renewed by prayer and faith. Mm -hmm. But I, I, um, my grandmother and my mother and father are dead. I never voiced this to anyone. I went through hell in my entire life, and I never. And maybe they knew, but my grandmother, I did not want to hurt her. But these people, and I have forgiven the people too, you know, although some of them are very, very old, and perhaps a sick with cancer and stuff. And if I saw them, I would be very polite to them. And um, it was a very cruel thing. And it's just, I said, I thought that this was perhaps happening to me because maybe of my uniqueness. They were predatory. They're predators. They, they, they knew how to lure me into their traps. And, I, and there were many. There were many. There were, I would say, four. And they must have had a conversations about it. And, but in high school... It didn't in high school um, affect my high school um, accomplishments because I just came, I was just a bright student in high school. I, high school was just amazing also. I was a star in high school. I was a star and I was tall and skinny and people loved me and I still have great friends from high school who really, I go home and Durham gave me the seat, key to the city. The mayor gave me the key to the city with my documentary. It was released last year. And it was just an amazing moment. Um, so I feel very proud of who I became, and I feel very resolute. And I think that, one, 
I am a survivor. One cannot be a victim of this. Mm -hmm. I have never sexually abused anyone, and I would never. And that's that's just it. And somehow, clothes. Uh, when I discovered Deanna Vreeland in Vogue, uh, it, and I got to Vogue, before I got to Vogue, I got to Deanna Vreeland as I was volunteering for her in 1974 for her show Romantic and Glamorous Hollywood Design with the world open. I had my master's degree in 74. I'd gone to Brown for three years, and I was about to enter my doctoral thesis. I packed up a little Louis Vuitton carry-on and came to New York to go to a Cody fashion show, and I never looked back. I left my trunks in the Brown dormitory, the grad dormitory. I was just in Brown last year. I went by the dormitory where we lived, and I thought, I wanted that trunk is still in the basement. I left the trunk with all my antique quilts of my great aunts. I went to Brown with beautiful quilts handmade. You know, Black women have gifts when they sew. And my great aunts had made extraordinary quilts, and I got them. My grandmother got them, and I took them to Brown. And it made my room. And I decorated my room with the quilt on the bed. And like you have pictures pinned on the board, I had walls and walls of pictures from Vogue, Naomi Sims, uh, Pat Cleveland, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, so I, I, I just, I, I packed up, I came to New York, I started volunteering for Mrs. Reeland in November of 74, and I never went back to Brown. I had my master's degree, but I did not start my doctoral thesis. And when we were doing the gospel according to Andre, Kate Novak, I give her great credit, Kate Novak was very, very resourceful and brilliant. She never really talked too much, but I trusted her. And one day she said, well, you know, I've got your thesis, your master's thesis. I said, what do you mean? I wrote to Brown and I got it. And I kept thinking, does she, did, she must have read that, but did she probably, she, I kept thinking she wanted to trap me, but I now realize she did not. She got it because she wanted to read it. And she said, when I call and ask for your thesis, because you know, if I did not have that pedigree, if suppose I said I have a master's degree in Brown, and she called Brown and said, well, we don't have the evidence of Mr. Talley ever being here. Well, that was not going to happen. And, she, and I have the thesis. And she said, oh, my God. And when I called, the lady said, oh, Andre Leontelli, yes, yes, he's here. I, he, he went to Brown. And the lady who was in charge of the thesis archive sent her a copy. And as I read the thesis, and I have the thesis at home in North Carolina. And um, I'm going to give it to the, the New York Public Library or something like that. They're calling me from the New York Public Library asking for my letters and papers already. And that's going to be a part of it. I want to tell you, Dario, that I went to... Um, Toronto to talk about the film, the documentary, according to Andre. I went to the Toronto Arts Center. It was a very big, important weekend. And so on a Sunday afternoon, on Monday afternoon at two o'clock, they showed the film and I sat on stage and answered questions. And this man of color, Jason Cyrus, came up and took the picture and he, we shared emails. He said, I would like to email you if I could. That's two years ago. This year, he wrote his master's thesis on Andre Leontale and got his master's degree, and I have a copy. And it's the first evidence that a person could write a thesis about me. He researched, he went, and he found 600 articles that I had written in Vogue, and he included, he edited articles out, and I have the thesis on my desk. How does that feel to, to, to look very at that? Very proud, very proud. From the University of Toronto, or some university in Canada, he got his master's degree, a black man. And I don't know if he's gay or fluid or bigender, but he was very fashionable because he also wore a dressing gown to the screening. And he, I said, come up here. You got a dressing gown on, a satin dressing gown. He must have read that I had worn a dressing gown to Maxine's as black tie, and it caused a scandal in 1978. From Karl Lagerfeld, correct? Yes, black cashmere Hilda Jenki from Carl Lagerfeld's wardrobe to my back. It was recommended by Carl because I was in his apartment. I couldn't go home across town to change in time of black tie. I had to cover this Valentino Jennifer the launch of a perfume. And everyone, everyone in Paris, the Brandolinis, the Brandolinis, the Brandolinis, the Cachos. I walked into Maxime alone to cover the party. There was a photographer waiting. I had on this black dressing gown with the most beautiful, I have it somewhere. Beautiful at home. It's a beautiful belt with cerise, fringe, satin pipe. Oh, it's fun. They talk, the jaws dropped the next day. Betty Catru called me and she says, you don't know what a scandal you cause. Everyone's talking about it. Well, they were scandalized 
not like a scandal, like I was taking a drug, I had a needle in my arm, because it was a social breaking of the boundaries. I dared, I took the risk, I listened to Carl, he says, take this, wear this, and look like Oscar Wilde, and you'll be fine. And I did, and I was skinny. And it was caused to cause celebra. <laughs> and someone said to me the other day, uh, well, don't you have a picture of that? I said, no, because I didn't think in those days. In 78, we weren't thinking about, we didn't have selfie and selfie sticks. And you did not record everything you did. But however, Anna Piaggi, who was Carl's great muse, the late Anna Piaggi, was a great friend of mine, decided to have Carl draw me for her column in Italian Vogue, Dopey No Piaggi, mm. Dope, double page. Anna went to, had a monthly column in Italian Vogue. And that is in that, and I, I think I have some way in my archives, but it was the most beautiful skinny drawing of me in the black cashmere robe in 1978. Spring 1978. And you know, I, you have that letter from Vreeland in the book. Did you ever read that letter in the book? Yes. That, and she talks about 78, that was my year, darling. And that's the year I became. <laughs> your year, this letter I kept, this is the letter that defined who I was in 78. Everything happened for me when I was sent to Paris by Women's Wedding to be the fashion editor. Amazing. And I, I have a question. You know, we speak, we've spoken a bit about being queer and being black and queer. Mm -hmm. And I had a, um, I, I hosted a panel at the Schomburg Center in, uh, in Harlem called Cut from a Different Cloth, the Queer Black Voice in Fashion. Mm -hmm. And essentially, um, it's really about how just underneath the surface of a very white facing industry is a cadre of queer black people working. Mm -hmm. So I had uh, Stephen Galloway, who's a creative movement director, um, mm -hmm. a former dancer who poses models on set, you know, Cara Delevingne, um, Carly Kloss. Mm -hmm. um, I had uh, Edward Buchanan, who's a fashion designer who lives in Milan now, but he was the first ready to wear designer for Bottega Veneta when they actually launched a collection outside of just making leather goods. Um, I had Audrey Smalls, who is, who identifies as, she, she says, I'm not a lesbian, but my wife is. <laughs> uh, but she essentially invented backstage production uh, with yes. her, with her company. And before that, like, you know, designers. Fashion, yeah, she was every fashion fair yeah. And then, um, and then Kyle Hagler, who's the president of Next Models. Um, but essentially, you are also a part of this story. Like, although you were seen, obviously, because you are 6'6", <laughs> six, six, mm -hmm. so much success. And, you know, even in your documentary, Anna Wintour says, Andre taught me everything I need to know about fashion. So how do you... You know, looking back, how do you feel right now knowing, you know, there's a there are amazing people that you've turned on. John Galliano, like that for me was incredible when you tell me the story of how you produced his first show. Um, Not for its comeback show, comeback show. Well, at, at, at Sal's. Oh, yeah. Okay. The comeback show that made him the creative director of Givenchy and creative director for Dior. That's when his career started. How do I feel? I feel, I feel that uh, I, I don't know how to articulate it. I, how do you feel with your success in the Viola Davis cover? How do you feel? <laughs> I, don't, I don't think about it like that. I just, I get up and do. My uncle, Louis, who was a barber, who was the most affluent member of our family, he was married to a school teacher, Aunt Noni. They had the best house. They had the big house with the fine furniture and the crystal and the glasses and the lace and this and that. They had an organ in the house. And every Christmas, we'd go to Uncle Lewis and Aunt Noni's house for Christmas to open our Christmas gifts, our whole family. They had the fabulous furniture. And they had the, he had the car in the 57, he had a 57 Chevrolet sedan. And he used to cut my hair when I was a child. And he used to say, just keep getting up every day. Just get up every day and keep moving. Just keep going. And I, I, I am grateful that I am looked upon because, you know, I was the only person on that front row in 78. I was the only tall black beanpole. And now there's Edward Innesville and you and, and, and Tyler Mitchell and Samira. And it's going to continue to grow. And that beautiful person's show you cast that got the CFDA award. What's his name? I'm sorry. Uh, Kirby Jean Raymond at Pierre Moss. Yes, yes. Beautiful Pierre Moss. And uh, there's uh, Virgil Abloh and the Demand of Dior, the Men's Dior Now, that did something inspired by African art. So 
we are a part of it because the black imagination is pivotal to anything in the universe, but it sometimes goes unsung and not rewarded, but yet they depend on it as it happened. That was the first time in the documentary Anna would ever said anything like that. I was shocked when she said that. Shocked. She didn't say it to me, but she said it in the documentary. So she confessed it, you know, and I must have been a pivotal force to her when she named me creative director in 1988. But then she never had me involved in conversations like when Oprah was on the cover for Beloved and she kept saying to Oprah on the phone, you've got to lose 30 pounds. And then after she lost the 30 pounds, they had to Photoshop the cover even to make her look thinner. And when Giselle Bunchen was on the cover with LeBron James, and I imagine they had been inspired by the film coverage of King Kong, when you know King Kong picks up Fay Ray in his arms. And this was told to me by a man who just wrote a book called Charcoal, um, a black man in Georgetown University. He calls it apism. He cites that cover as symbolic of apism. She never involved me in the conversations like that. However, she did give me one great trophy was when she had me do the profile of Michelle Obama as the first African-American first lady. That was the highest award she ever gave me at Vogue. And I appreciate it. That's part of my legacy. But people are sometimes embraced and brought into the fold, but they're never allowed to flourish and blossom. Uh, well, Edward, Edward already had his creds before he even came to Vogue. You know, he was a freelancer at Vogue, American Vogue. He was already uh, a, a major force because I think he worked for ID. He'd been creative director for ID. Mm -hmm. And I remember that uh, it, she said one day he bought a shoot and he said, she said, where's the glamour? And this field shoot is lacking glamour. But I remember his first shoot with Stephen Mizell. It was fabulous. He did girls in evening gowns in a supermarket. I thought it was so impeccable. And we are just, you know, now I survived in the Chiffon Trenches. I survived because of the people who knew that I was smart. Friends, Carl Lagerfeld, he didn't have me there for my looks. And I never slept with Carl Lagerfeld, Hubert Givenchy, or anyone, man or woman. And that's a very racist thing that people think that if you got black, you got to be there for your sexual prowess. And, um, People, I stayed in there because the people that were my close friends knew that I was someone special. Manolo Blahnik, Carl Lagerfeld, Yves Saint Laurent, and Valentino. Valentino was one of my biggest supporters. Giancarlo Giannetti. They had me do a monograph uh, on Franco Maria Ricci and Valentino that Jackie Kennedy, it was in Jackie Kennedy's estate sale. I wanted to buy it. It went for $7,000. I do have the book here. That was a great, it was a great honor. Valentino then came to me when he did his, his book on his table settings and recipes. I think it's called the, last, the Emperor's Last Table or something like that. That was about five years ago. Oh, he chose me. I didn't make much money, but it was so prestigious and I worked so hard on that. And then Valentino, I will always respect because he's one of the greatest designers that ever lived, Valentino. And so people who had positions of prominence in the world of fashion always respected my point of view and looked to me for my advice. And somehow that is organic. It was not uh, imposed upon them by anyone. Oscar de la Renta loved me. I loved Oscar de la Renta. We were close friends. Mutual Prada, I don't see her that much anymore. But these are people that just mattered. And I just, I think uh, I have so much to say in another book in another format and I will mm. continue to, to, to do things that would show people that, you know, I have something that I was part of a great, great time in fashion in the 70s. Dion von Furstenberg, one of my closest friends in life. We've been friends for over 40 years. Um, she just, her, her nurturing is just so phenomenal. Deanna Vreeland, I recently found out on my front porch, one of my best friends, Jonathan Becker said to me, do you realize that Deanna Vreeland, when she first met you, told Bob Colicello, an interview that she told Andy Warhol that, like Anna Wintz had said, that I had this knowledge. Mrs. Vreeland said to these people at interview, you've got to have Andre at the factory. This was in 1975. I went to the factory in 75, January, making $75 a week. And I left in August going to Women's Wear Daily as a sexuary's fashion editor, making $22,000 a year. The day I was called in to the office of Andy, 
for lunch to get a, a raise and a promotion, I was going to be making $150 a week, and I would have to come to work from 9 to 5. I would go to work from 12 to 6. The phone rang. Carrie Donovan was my great friend, Carrie Donovan, the late Carrie Donovan, who had discovered Pat Cleveland on the subway. And she said, and she remember she had the, the gay boyfriend, mm, Joel yeah. Jomana, who became a great director who just recently died this year. And uh, the phone rang and Bob ran in and said, Andre, you have Carrie Donovan on your phone in your office. I ran to the phone and Carrie Donovan said, this was August, get over to Women's Wear Daily. They want to interview you. Marion McAvoy is going to Paris to be the Paris fashion editor and they need a replacement. Get over there. They want to interview you. And I said, Carrie, there's no way they're going to hire me. There is no way. I called. I went over to interview on a Friday afternoon. I didn't let the people at the factory know. They offered me the job, 22000 a year. I started work on Monday morning as fashion editor. In 1975. In 1978, I went to Paris as fashion editor. And the story goes on. But so Mrs. Freeland has said, uh, you got to have him at the factory. So when I got the job at the factory in January of 1975, I found out from Jonathan this summer on my porch, he said, Bob Colicello told him that Mrs. Freeland had said, this man has more knowledge about fashion than I do. And that is told to me in 2020. But I love Mrs. Freeland, and she is my greatest mentor. And so this is the way my life is, the trajectory of my life has been ex extraordinary. And I became great friends with Deanna Freeland, and everyone knows that. When Deanna Freeland was dying, and she was not receiving anymore, and she was, had gone blind, not, you know, she couldn't read anymore, she took to her bedroom. She only allowed her friends, her, her, her son, her grandsons, the Tibetan monk and Alexander Freeland and me into her bedroom. And why was I allowed? I'd go in and read to her out loud. I'd sit in a chair, she'd be beautifully dressed in her bed, and she'd just lie up in bed, and, and I would read out loud. And she loved listening to me read, and this is one of my greatest things I would read to her. I would read entire books to her. I read two, Queen Marie of Romania by Hannah Pakula, a big book, the entire book from cover to cover. I'd go up on a Friday night, we would have dinner, the two of us, We'd have a few shots of vodka, a little 10 bottles of vodka, a little tiny little Russian vodka, little silver cups like that, probably six or seven or eight. And I just started reading it until four or five in the morning. And then I'd go back the next night on a Saturday and do the same thing. And then I do the next week and we continued. So it was a very 19th century, very 19th century, very fabulous. Very grand. <laughs> That's amazing. Very grand, very grand. I keep her picture on my desk. <laughs> this is a picture I styled with Jonathan Becker at W. Jonathan Becker was a photographer. He's a great editorial photographer. And he's my best friend. And I am the godfather to his daughter, Roberta, named after John McCain's, John McCain's mother, Roberta Digby. And we were given an assignment. And I said to Mr. Fairchild, my great boss, who filmed Mr. David, I want to go and do Mrs. Freeland's shoes. He says, well, you go and do it. He assigned Jonathan to, the, to, the, to, the, to be the photographer. That's where we met in Mrs. Reeland's apartment one Saturday afternoon. Because Mrs. Reeland had the most extraordinary Vivier shoes. Vivier and Dalco of Rome. And I styled this picture with Jonathan Becker. I met him, and I, all I can remember is I said, hello, Jonathan. And I kept cajoling Mrs. Reeland to get into this beautiful black velvet dress by Madame Gray, her favorite black velvet evening dress. I said, wouldn't it be lovely, Mrs. Freeland? I never called her Dion. I called her Mrs. Freeland. I, wouldn't, I, I never called her Dion. Everyone calls her Dion. I called her Mrs. Freeland. I said, oh, Mrs. Freeland, wouldn't it be lovely to just be photographed like Mary Queen of Scots on your red sofa? And she said, mm, mm, Yvonne! And then she went into her room and she came out in the black velvet Madame Grey couture dress. And the red Dalco of Rome shoes. Dalco of Rome, finest Roman shoemaker. Look at those red shoes. And she had a little red bag strung over her shoulder from a little red satin pochette. And so the Vivier boots, she had rows and rows of these shoes. And she had a process. And this is why I, I said to Mr. Fairchild, 
Mrs. Reeland polishes the soles of her shoes with a rhinoceros horn. You think it's fantasy, but it's true. She would have, and she didn't polish them, and she had them. She was polished. And I don't know why she had them polished with a rhinoceros horn. Maybe it was a carryover from her husband from the Edwardian era, the Edwardian epoch, when she did that as a child. But this was a part of her life. This was part of her maintenance. Yeah. And this I am so proud of. Look at that. Yeah, it's beautiful. She, look at the VVA boots. Sickening. And it's just one pair. She had silver. Silver crocodile. And she said, oh, I said, where did you wear those crocodile boots? And they were to the knee. She says, oh, I just put them on to walk across the carpet and downstairs and into the taxi. And then I never wore them again. That's for silver. I mean, they photographed the silver, but there are pictures of the silver boots. But the important thing was she trusted me and we had a long relationship. By this time, I had already been at the factory and then I had been at W and this is what I did. And I'm very proud of it. Thank you all so much for listening to part one of this conversation with the ebullient and effervescent Andre Leon Talley. This was a dense one. So much ground was covered in both of our lives. If you enjoyed this conversation, please share it with your friends. Shout us out over on Instagram at Black Imagination Podcast. And let us know what part of the conversation impacted you the most. Be sure to subscribe wherever you receive your podcasts. Rate and review us on iTunes, and if you'd like to support this work, please be sure to click the support link on the show notes. A favorite poet of mine, Hafiz, from the 14th century, has this line, and it says, Fear is the cheapest room in the house, and I'd like to see you living in better conditions. Black imagination is liberation. Stay curious and keep dreaming.